Blog Talk Radio. Fun. 
Now we can choose to listen or talk to our host. Chuck, what have you got for us? Well, Don, last week in episode 13, we shared the repartee show a story about Captain Dick Morrow, also known as Seniority Number Two, but perhaps more of a celebrity than a number one among the employees of Eastern and the world. Today, he continues sharing more about life of this remarkable pilot. Here are the stories written by the men and women of Eastern Airlines with us each week. These are stories written by pilots who flew the planes of Picard Aviation, Eastern Air Transport, Eastern Airlines, stories printed in Repartee and other publications. Captain Mike, now how about sharing our program? Okay, thanks Chuck. Henry Tyndall Dick Merrill, born February 1st 1894, and passed away on October 31st, uh, 1982. Since last week's broadcast, when we shared a few of remembrances by his friends and fellow pilots, we bring you the rest of the story as it was reported in the Eastern Airlines Pilots Association's official publication, Repartee. Among Dick's feats, he was the highest-paid airmail pilot, Flew the first round trip of transatlantic flight in 1936, was Dwight D. Eisenhower's personal pilot during 19, his 1952 presidential elections, set several speed records, and would go on to be Eastern Airlines' most experienced pilot with over 36,000 hours until his retirement in 1961. In total, Merrill flew over 45,000 hours as pilot in command, covering over 8 million miles. Merrill began his, began, uh, began his aviation career in Ernst when he purchased a World War I surplus uh, Jenny JN-4 in Columbus, Georgia in 1920 for $600. Flying at air shows through the 20s and briefly appearing in uh, with Ivan Gates in air circus in the mid-twenties. Mr. Producer, would you share this article written by his close buddy and fellow Eastern pilot from Repartee? The memories of Dick Merrill as shared by his friends in Repartee brings us to the one by his very good friend, uh, J.B. Armstrong. It's titled, Dick Merrill, Love Venus. Our beloved Dick Merrill came to Karen Aviation in 1928, where he flew as the number two pilot in seniority, following our inimitable Gene Brown, who got on the property earlier than Dick and at a much younger age. Both of them survived many long years as Eastern Airlines captains, from those mail-wing days to the jet age of the DC-8s. Before coming to Eastern, Dick had been a barnstormer in the Mississippi Delta region over a period of several years, and both of them flew the Richmond-Atlanta mail-wing flight, surviving the adverse weather conditions of that route, heavy rains, blinding snowstorms, and hidden thunderstorms, without aids of any kind to help them know what lay in front of them. Their careers paralleled each other on into the day when Pitcairn Aviation became known as Eastern Air Transport. 
when both of them took part in the beginning of passenger service, which began in August 18, 1930. Out of 40 airmail pilots, Dick and Gene were two of only eight of them that lived through the early months of that dangerous career in which there were no guidelines from previous experiences. Dick began flying the Ten Goose, as the Ford Trimotor was affectionately called, and he qualified many of our other pilots on this great plane, which bore the license number NC410 Hotel. Later in his colorful career, he flew the old-type Condors and uh, all of Eastern routes on all of Eastern's routes as at the terrific speed of 110 miles per hour and made countless landings at the momentous speed of 40 miles per hour. All the other pilots liked to fly with him because he was always as busy as a beaver in the cockpit. Many times, and it seemed, he was just messing something up so he could correct it synchronizing engine RPMs and things like that. His love of his work was fascinating to everyone who knew him. Sometimes when he was working on something else, he would say to the co-pilot, keep the ball in the center. And many times when I was flying with him, he would deliberately go off course just to get into a damn thunderstorm. When I would ask him why he was doing it, he would say, I want to see how this thing behaves in rough air. And I would answer him, Oh, bullshit, Dick. This is scaring the bejeebies out of me. Now, this reminds me of why Dick loved the planet Venus so much. One night back about 1932, I was flying with him in the old Condor between Atlanta and Richmond. We had 12 passengers aboard, and Jesse Thrash, a company employee, was one of them, along with the famous golfer Gene Sarzen. The weather had been reported to us as clear and unlimited, so when we made a stop at Greensboro, we saw no need to take on gas. About 40 minutes after we had departed Greensboro, Richmond called us to report their weather had gone to zero zero and they informed us that Washington had also gone to zero-zero. Dick immediately turned us around and started back toward Greensboro when uh, they radioed that they had closed down along the bad with bad news that Charlotte was also closed. Zero-zero there, too. No doubt about it, we were now up the prover- proverbial creek without a paddle, or so I thought. But it didn't seem to bother good old Dick too much. Well, maybe Dick didn't know it, but it scared the hell out of me. Dick said, we'll take it to South Boston. I've been there with the mail wing many times, and I know the place like the back of my hand. He circled the plane back from west to east, zeroing in on South Boston Airport. We were on top of a fairly thick fog beneath us, but were able to pick up an airway beacon when directly over it. When we went over the South Boston Beacon Light, we were headed east with Venus brightly beaming at us above the fog, about 10 degrees above the horizon. Lined up with Venus, which Dick had calculated from the beacon light, would line him up with the field. He suddenly, at about 50 feet, eased the throttles back and 
Before I had time to get scared, we rolled onto the grass of the South Boston Emergency Field, still on instruments as we came to a stop. An old man came out with a Ford truck and said, Follow me. One of the passengers asked Dick where we were. When Dick answered, South Boston, the passenger snapped back, I don't want to go to Boston. Take me to Washington, please. Our stew gave us some warm coffee with a cold cheese sandwich and a piece of pound cake, and that was the end of that memorable experience with Dick. The next time, the next time anyone sees Jesse Thrash at the Reaper Luncheon in Miami, be sure to ask him about that trip. Now, since Gene Ramsey is the editor of Repartee and will be bringing my story to you, I want him to tell Gene Brown that I may not write as well as he does, but I sure do have more hair than he does. That was by J.B. Armstrong. <laughs> that was a good story, Neil. Yeah. Well, this story is about the famous ping-pong flight. Dick Merrill had planned his transatlantic flight for some time but was unable to finance it on his pay at Eastern Airlines as a uh, pilot. Things changed when he met millionaire and singer Harry Richmond, famed for putting on the Ritz. After taking the singer's show, uh, taking in the singer's show in Miami, Merrill planted the idea for a round-trip flight over the Atlantic. He brazenly declared that they uh, could take the plane to Europe, then we'll gas her up and we'll fly her back. It's never been done before. Richmond, who had recently gained his pilot's license, had uh, been able to secure the Volte V1A, capable of making the flight. The aircraft, NC-13770, had originally been built for Lieutenant Colonel George R. Hutchinson, proposed all freight New York, London, Moscow airline, who had never got started up. Merrill and Richmond extensively modified the Volte V1A for the flight using Eastern Airlines mechanics. Now, Mr. Producer, do you have another article that appeared in Repartee about our fellow captain? Here's an article written by Captain Tom Early for the 1984 issue of Repartee. Uh, its title is Reminiscences About Dick Merrill. I never had the pleasure of a close acquaintance with Dick Merrill, but even so I count myself among his admirers. I first met Dick late in 1940 when I flew two trips with him under a temporary scheduling arrangement of New York co-pilots with Miami captains. Right away, he asked me how far up the ladder I was among the co-pilots and treated me like a pilot who already knew how to fly. This was just a small example of the tact and consideration for which he was well known. At that time, Dick was already an authentic celebrity, but you never would have guessed it from his demeanor. As a pilot, he was casual, relaxed, informal, and unassuming, without a trace of self-importance. Later, I learned that they all looked alike to him, presidents, kings, and racetrack bookies at all. 
high or low, it made no difference. I was hoping he would talk some about the two round trip flights he made across the Atlantic, especially about the time Harry Richmond dumped the fuel just as they were approaching the coast of Newfoundland, but he never said a word. I guessed it wasn't much of a guy to go around letting cats out of the bag. I didn't see Dick again for about six months or eight, maybe more. Then one day I ran with him into him at the airport in Atlanta. I had no idea he would recognize me. I was traveling on a C-3 pass and not wearing a uniform. But right away he said, Hello, Tom, and stuck out his hand. I was amazed. It was my first encounter with that fantastic memory of his for names and faces. It's not surprising that he was popular. There must be a jillion good stories around about Dick's heralded affinity for the galloping dominoes and other instruments of chance and skill, and I wish I had some of them in my repertoire, but I don't. All I can really say for sure on this subject is that he was no penny-ante operator. He was big time all the way. And the same is true about his legendary sense of showmanship. He always put his best foot forward with the news media and treated the reporters with courtesy and consideration, which paid a huge dividends not only to Dick himself, but also to Eastern Airlines. A story comes to my mind indicative of the magical aura around Dick Merrill's name. I was flying a trip from New York to Miami. A wrinkled old Jewish gentleman, well up in years, showed me a creased, well-worn, almost illegible piece of yellow paper, which he carried in his pocket. It was one of those handwritten bulletins that we used to pass out to the passengers before we had loudspeakers on the airplanes. And, of course, it was signed by Dick Merrill. This old boy was beaming all over. His happiness was complete. He had flown with Captain Dick Merrill. The last time I saw Dick Merrill was in 1979 at the REPA convention in Fredericksburg. I took my wife to the Eastern Museum where Dick was the curator and introduced her to him. And immediately he gave her a a spiel about me, giving me plenty the best of it. Of course, he's a great guy, she told me. I cannot pretend that these meager lines do justice to Dick Merrill. He was truly one of a kind, an all-time great, whose equal we will not likely see again. Au revoir, Dick. The gap you left won't be filled by Tom Early. Now famous, Merrill thoroughly enjoyed his celebrity and in love, the nightlife, and hobdob with both the famous and infamous. Although earning a good salary, he habitually was broke due to gambling. He had become a fixture at parties of the rich and famous, and it was one of these that he met Toby Wing, a chorus girl who became a movie star, appearing in 52 features in shorts. Two were married in Tijuana in 1938, but her parents objected to this sort of marriage, so they were married a second time in the home of Sidney Shannon, 
an early Eastern Airlines investor. His marriage finally turned around his financial woes, and he became devoted to his new wife. Merle was 22 years wing senior. Shortly after their marriage, she met Bob Hope, who joked, Toby, it's nice to see you. I'm glad you brought your father along. According to to the wing, Merle never forgave Hope for the insult. After a Broadway run, Toby retired from show business the next year. The couple moved to Miami, where Merle flew with the Eastern Airlines Miami to New York runs with occasional flights to South America. Mr. Producer, I understand we have one more article that you would like to add to our show. An article written by his friend and co-pilot, Herb Smith, appeared in the 1984 issue of Repartee. The title, Everybody Loved Dick Merrill. I have many wonderful memories of flying with my friend Dick Merrill. One flight in particular clings to my memory. It was between Miami and what was then known as Idlewild. During some cockpit conversation, Dick casually mentioned that he had been in the company of some numerous underworld characters that day. And as I recall, some of the names were Jake the Snake, Max the Axe, and other similar names too numerous to mention. Well, knowing Dick as well as I did and realizing what a flamboyant person he was himself, I took all this with the proverbial grain of salt. But sure enough, the next day, when I picked up the Miami Herald and began to read, I read that Dick had indeed been with all the above. He knew everybody, even underworld figures, and they loved him too. Another flight with Dick that I remember well was from Montreal to Idlewild in a DC-7. No doubt one of the reasons I remember it so well is because it was just a miserable day. As we approached Idlewild, we were vectored to the east end of Long Island and were given instructions to hold in the appropriate holding pattern. The only trouble was, where we were told to hold was directly in the middle of some severe icing at our altitude. We had not been holding very long in these horrible conditions when one of the engines began to really act up. I said to Dick, Hey Dick, I think that engine... That danged engine is going to quit. Dick answered me in a firm tone. It wouldn't dare. And sure enough, from that moment on, those four engines purred like four little pussycats out for a night's howl. Magic is a word, just another example of the magic that seemed to surround everything that Dick did. Well, a lot of years have rolled by since those wonderful trips I had with Dick as his happy co-pilot, but we remained good friends into our retirement years. Not too long ago, I was happy and proud to have played a small part in obtaining passage for Dick and Toby on the Concord. From Dallas International Airport to Heathrow Airport in London, England, and return. For this trip, he had gotten a special clearance from the FAA to be at the controls of the supersonic aircraft in flight. So I guess Dick is the oldest captain ever to fly that great machine. 
My friends with the British airline went all out for Dick and Toby. They had prearranged for them to be housed in a very fancy hotel at HLR. Uh, they were escorted to the hotel in a beautiful white Rolls Royce, and to top it off, they were part of the bridal suite or they were put in the bridal suite. Well, anyone who knows me knows I couldn't let that one get by without a fun poke at dick. So when I talked to them later on the transatlantic phone, I said to Dick, Hey, Dick, what the heck, what the heck are you doing in the bridal suite? I wish I could have seen the grin on his face when he answered that one. After their return to California and when I had a chance to talk to them about the trip, I asked Dick if they had flown about 1,800 miles per hour, but he said it was only about 1,350 miles per hour. Well, so be it. It was certainly quite a contrast to the speed he and Jack Lambie made on their Atlantic crossing. I forgot to mention that the reason for this trip for Toby and Dick was so he could get to Munich to be honored by the IOC, the International Order of Characters. Here's another vignette of memory. It was during a layover in New York City when we were staying at the Paramount Hotel. Dick and I parted company in the lobby about 6 p.m. He said he would return soon to go to dinner together. He came back about two hours later, just loaded, loaded with all kinds of loot imaginable. Tools, ties, dresses, candy, theater, tickets, hankies, etc., etc. You name it, and he had it. Like I said, everybody on Broadway loved Dick Merrill by Herb Smith. Yes, uh, Merrill was too old to be commissioned during World War II and instead signed on as a civilian pilot and flew the China-Burma-India CBI better known as the Hump, in DC-3s and C-47 Skytrains and C-46 Commandos. He returned to Eastern Airlines after the war, becoming a senior pilot with the airline. In 1948, at 10,000 feet off the Florida coast, Merrill's calm and skillful management of an in-flight emergency was evident when a propeller on an Eastern Airlines Constellation tore through the fuselage and killing a steward instantly. Merrill was credited with saving the lives of 69 people on board. 1953, he piloted an Eastern Airlines Super Constellation in an aviation promotional movie called Flying with Godfrey, with Godfrey as the narrator. He would officially retire from Eastern Airlines on October 3, 1961, after flying a Douglas DC-8 from New York to Miami. <clears throat> Excuse me. At retirement, he reputedly had flown the longest accumulative distance of any pilot in commercial aviation history, and ranked as the second most senior pilot with the airline after 36,650 hours flown over a period of 33 years. Merrill continued flying for pleasure into his 80s, setting several aviation records. In 1966, he flew his active friend Arthur Godfrey on an around-the-world flight and set a speed record delivering a Lockheed 1011 from California to Miami at an average speed of 710 miles an hour in 1978 and flew the Concorde, which we mentioned, on one occasion. 
1970, he was awarded the FAI Gold Medal Award, which is Federation Aeronautic International, or World Air Sports Federation is better known. After retirement from active flying, Merrill managed the Shannon Air Museum in Fredericksburg, Virginia, during the late 70s and the early 80s. After moving west, Merrill died at Lake Elsinore, California, October 31st, 1982, at the age of 88. Toby Merrill Wing was still, still beside him at his passing. He is buried in Christ Church Kingston Parish Cemetery, Matthews, Virginia. Wing would spend the remainder of her life actively promoting her husband's rightful place in the annals of aviation history. Uh, I guess we're open for some comments there, Mr. Producer. Yep, and uh, I'd like to add and to think that uh, we we flew and occupied a place on the same seniority list uh, with uh, pilots like number one, Gene Brown, and number two, pilot, Dick Merrill, stood at the top of the list, the two of them. I wondered if they argued about a trip that they both wanted. Of course, Gene Brown would win that, uh, would win that bet. But uh, what an honor to be with a company, uh, with a company that uh, these two great gentlemen were part of, and they were class acts. They really were. Certainly were. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was uh, interesting that uh, he had a much uh, uh, celebrated life than uh, Gene Brown, and uh, although Gene, for years and years after. Gene was still on the seniority list after Dick died. I forgot who moved up number two position, I believe. I know at one time um, uh, Babbitt, uh, Slim Babbitt, was number one at one time. I forgot what year that was. But, uh, of course, you know, being a pilot and uh, moving up the seniority list was your main ambition course not to have an accident or uh, rub uh, an airplane against another and uh, that was all my always my determination was to stay with the company and, and ease and move up the list I knew I'd never be number one although there were a lot of folks that I did fly with that that uh, didn't make it but could have make it but had have had made it because of when they were hired they were very young just like Gene Brown well, anyhow, that's that's all we'll do of Gene for uh, the Reaper Radio Hour, and um, we'll we'll do some other uh, stories of uh, some of the Eastern uh, legendary pilots. If you guys can uh, can be with us, we'd certainly appreciate that. That's the yeah. Uh, yeah go ahead, Mike. To get back to that, uh, the ping pong flight, we didn't mention a whole lot about that. Uh, yeah, Don yeah. was talking about it. Tell uh, us about excuse it. Excuse me. Well, I just read a couple of things there without getting involved with a whole bunch of stuff. They, uh, they, that ping pong, they put uh, between forty and fifty thousand ping pong balls in the in the in the airframe of that airplane to keep it buoyant, just in case it went into the water. And I didn't, didn't realize they had put that many ping pong balls in there. And also, they, uh, the gas that they used on that airplane was the first time they had come up with 100-octane fuel. Oh, And uh, I had not known that one. 
Yeah. And also the the airplane was uh, re-registered. Uh, it was NC one three seven seven zero, and for that flight they made it restricted, so that it became NR one three seven seven zero for that flight. Mm. And the airplane was renamed Lady Peace. And what kind, <laughs> what type of airplane, Mike? That was that was the Volte V one A. Volte, yeah, Volte. And it was named Lady Peace, yeah. yeah. I just thought, thought I'd throw those couple of things in there. <clears throat> well, Neil, we did a we did a thing on Dick Merrill several months ago, and we read about the uh, ping pong balls, but I didn't yeah. know about the octane fuel. Yeah, I didn't either. You know, we were doing some stories about uh, famous Eastern pilots. Uh, back when we first started the three o'clock show, Don, if you recall, and uh, we did several of them. We did one of Gene Brown, I believe, and uh, yeah. uh, so at any rate, uh, it's fun doing these stories, and uh, uh, there's so much good reading about Eastern in the repartee magazines throughout the years from the newsletter to the magazines as they appeared I didn't uh, know that, later. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I didn't know that Dick was uh, flying the uh, the uh, Connie that lost the prop. And it went I, the you know, when I saw I that, that, I remembered, and I thought it might have been, but I couldn't put the two of them together, uh, yeah, Don, that was, like you. That was uh, February 7th, 1948, and it was, wow. uh, the Connie was uh, NC112Alpha was the was the registration number on it, and it was a uh, Lockheed uh, L649 at the time, and I guess it remained one, because that uh, that same airplane back in, uh, in uh, or further on in 1955 in December, uh, was involved with a uh, an accident, uh, where it, it it crashed and they uh, and they had 12 fatalities on it. Crashed on the approach going into uh, into Jacksonville. Mm. And uh, you know, I remember that. that. Here's the interesting thing, Mike, about that Jacksonville crash. Now that you've mentioned it, uh, a good friend of mine who helped me put together uh, the repartee, uh, the 30 years of history, the book. John Engel uh, was hired in 1932, and John told me the story about that, Connie, and that there was an extra body that they found. They couldn't figure out where it was, but then they discovered that Freight had put his body in the baggage compartment. And, of course, when they counted the number of dead, they found his body, and they included that in the official count. It's an interesting story. Yeah. I don't know whether it appears in any material you've looked up, but I remember John telling me about it. Well, evidently that airplane went through, uh, it, it was probably a bad luck airplane to begin with, I guess, yeah. being involved with two two episodes. <laughs> yeah. Now, a flight attendant was killed. A prop came through and... Took the flight attendant out, right? Yeah. Yeah. Our steward. 
Yeah, interesting. Chuck. Hey, Chuck. I don't know if you remember, I told you that my, my dad, uh, I think it was Charleston, I'm not too sure, he was field manager. And um, Charles Lindbergh came through there. Uh, I guess he was on his way to Miami. I don't. I, I can't remember where he was going. But my dad got to meet him. Um, and they got to talking about the old days and the war and everything else. And and uh, Lindbergh gave he his plane had ping pong balls in it. And my dad he gave my dad three ping pong balls and he signed them. Oh, I've okay. tore up four houses trying to find them ping pong balls. <laughs> <laughs> But um, he, a lot of these people that we talked about today, my dad would talk to me about them. Well, I met him, and I, when I went to New York, I met him. And uh, I can't remember if he met Dick Morrow or not. He probably did. Um, oh, yeah, I'm sure he did. Again? Yeah. Huh? Can you remember when we when we he retired again? Nineteen sixty one or sixty two. Yeah, he could have met Dad. Uh, yeah. You know, my dad was there from nineteen thirty seven to nineteen fifty two. So he well, met a lot of. Like we we talked about last time. Anytime Dick Merrill was. Uh, in the presence of anybody, a bunch of people would gather around him. And that's that's yeah. how I remember seeing him was down in the old terminal in Atlanta, downstairs. And I was checking in as a co-pilot. And here these guys were all gathered around this guy. And it just so happened was Dick Merrill. And um, interesting person. You know, when you talked about Lindbergh uh, coming to Charleston, John Ingle. Uh, had 42 years with Eastern, and he went to Eastern in 42, I mean 32, as a, a graduate of the first class of aeronautical engineers at Georgia Tech. And he went immediately to work with Eastern. They put him over in Charleston, and then he eventually came to Jacksonville as a manager, sales manager, and then finally the uh, station manager there. And John recalled it in his book. He wrote a book himself about early days of aviation in Jacksonville. But Laurie Young had a fixed space operation here in Jacksonville. And when I took my cross country for my commercial pilot's certificate, you had to have a 350 mile trip uh, out, and you could make some stops along the way, but you had to go at least 350. I think that probably is still required. But my trip was to Jacksonville, straight up the coast, couldn't get lost, keep the body of water on the right side of the airplane. And I eventually made Jacksonville and went into operations there at Laurie Young Aviation. And Laurie Young signed my logbook and his FAA certificate, CAA certificate back in those days was 77, number 77. Now, John, uh, uh, he had uh, airplane training airplanes, ran a flight school, 
Laurie did. And Laurie took off to fly out to the ship that was bringing Lindbergh back from Paris. And he thought the city sent him out and paid for his trip out there to the boat. And he dropped a message down to the boat for Lindbergh to ask him to uh, include Jacksonville in the number of cities that he was about to tour. Um, and and he did. He came to Jacksonville. And um, that was an interesting, you know, Larry Young Jr. lives in Central Florida, his son, and used to attend a lot of the REPA, I think he still probably does, conventions and and uh, interesting person. So those are just some of the things that remind me after we talk about these stories. Uh, all sorts of things come to mind. I'm sure it does yours, too. <laughs> Uh, one one thing will jog your mind about another yeah. one. That's how these yeah. things usually work, you know. Well, I want to ask Dorothy to jog her mind and tell us what's going on uh, with the website oh, and new members. Yeah. And let's include that if we can. Um, we we don't have any new members this week yet. Uh, doesn't mean we won't because we've been doing very well. Uh, but uh, upcoming programs, um, we have next week on the 22nd, Monday, Our Dreams, Good and Bad, followed, of course, by another Reap episode. And then we have uh, our one Monday night that we're going to present Eastern Music, Come Fly With Me. That sounds really interesting. And then we'll have another Monday show, Once Upon a Long Time Ago, A Walk Down the Mind's Memory. <laughs> That should be interesting. So everybody keep up all those thoughts you had of Eastern way back when so you can tell us a little bit about once upon a long time ago. Um, So we have a a lot of musical and regular history programs coming up. Of course, the nice thing that I like about it, Neil, is that with the music program, you bring in some of the Eastern history, and I'll tell you, that really is I really like to hear that about that time. It kind of brings in what was going on in the world, not just what's going on in music or history. It's a combination. So I really liked hearing about it. I don't know about what anybody else feels, but certainly would love to hear people's comments, and I'll certainly put them on the website. Uh, we have a lot of comments on our website, so folks... Uh, Please uh, let us know how things are going and what you think about the programs that we put on every single Monday and Thursday. And if you have anything to contribute, we certainly would love to hear it. Back to you, Neil. You know, I really enjoyed the musical selections that we did. I think, Don, you suggested that we do it, um, Eastern Cities, and uh, that was a lot of fun to do. And instead of using... Yeah, instead of using dates and people, I just uh, thought of those cities as I remembered them operating in and out of those cities, Uh, whether the music was good or whether um, the food was good and what cities and where I ate during those times that I was visiting those cities. And that was a lot of fun to write that. And and it's all all personal stuff. 
Yeah. Right. If anybody else has them, we'd be glad Dorothy. to hear about it because it's something that you could put in, Neil. I could. Excellent. And I know, Mike, you've got some stories. Don, you've got some stories. And Chuck, you've got some stories. Why don't you jot them down and, golly, we'll we'll uh, fill the hour them. with uh, personal stories along with the music. Yeah. Great. Well, we got a lot, we of, to, lot more to, cities. Try to keep we try to keep it tuned to uh, to along the eastern stuff instead of getting off the beaten path. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you do. Well, that's what that's it's all about. To do. Right, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And Neil worked hard at bringing in the eastern flow with the music, yeah. so it's not just all one thing. And uh, I yeah. love hearing it. I think it's a great thing because it brings all yeah. of us into play, not just one. Uh, yeah. It yeah. was fun. Uh, and. Yeah, 386, area code 386. Who's that? Yeah, just checking in, Neil. Sorry, just got home. Uh, I know I'm late. It's Bob, Bob Ricketts. Hey, Bob. Good to hear you. Good to hear you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we've been talking about Eddie Rickenbacker. I mean, not Eddie Rickenbacker, but uh, Dick Merrill. Have you got any remembrances about Dick Merrill? You know, unfortunately, uh, he was a little bit ahead of my time. I, he may have already retired, or he may have <laughs> All been. All of us. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't get here till early 66, and I think he was a little bit gone. But uh, yeah. I heard uh, many, many really interesting and, and fun complimentary stories about him. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we were just talking about some future shows, too. And um, if you have any stories you want to share with us uh, by all means uh, send them to me email them to me you know I had a story that one of the mechanics had uh, a woman mechanic that had been hired to do a D check on the 1011 I think I brought that up in a in a former uh, in a story a while back and she was supposed to send me the entire story but basically she transferred from one job to uh, doing a 1011 where they needed a lot of bodies to um, undo the airplane floorboards <laughs> yeah remove the floorboards and all the screws that uh, she had to unscrew and and she met her husband who was the foreman of that job and uh, that was an interesting but she never did send it to me so I think I told it the best I could remember <laughs> I don't have – it's Bob again. I don't have any stories about uh, Dick Merrill, but I do remember a very short story about Arthur Godfrey, who did a lot of commercial yeah. work for Eastman, and he was in, got uh, to be an honorary captain and all that. And it, we, the story is we were going into uh, O'Hare one night, very late, foggy. Uh, it was down to – I think this was even before the days of Cat 2 and Cat 3. So it was down to 200 and a half, and uh, – so we're making the approach, and we just we we broke out, and we're just about to touch down, and suddenly O'Hare Tower says, "Eastern, go around, go around," and uh, Captain pushed the throttles up and around. We went. We found out later that ground ground radar, which they had in at O'Hare, and it was a brand new thing, hardly any airports had it at that time, had detected an airplane that had landed before, so it had not gotten off the runway. They were still on the runway, taxiing down. It turned out to be Arthur Godfrey. <laughs> oh, isn't that interesting? Was it in his DC-3 that Eastern gave him? No, it was in a jet. Uh, I don't recall. Oh. Uh, you know, it was oh. in a biz jet. 
of some sort. Yeah. And I don't even know if he was flying it, but I think he at least was in the cockpit because he was talking on the radio. Yeah. Well, I think Godfrey's been replaced by Harrison Ford now as far as celebrity <laughs> pilot. I was just going to say that, actually. At good. least he's not Harrison. Board who keeps flying somewhere he shouldn't be. <laughs> he, has, he hasn't buzzed the tower yet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, I think everybody knows that Eastern gave Godfrey a DC-3. Yeah. Now, he may have paid for that, but I think it was a gift to him because of all the good publicity he mentioned on the television show and I think it was way yeah, that Rickenbacker. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. No, I did, I did not know that Eastern gave him a DC-3. That's, that's yeah, true. had his name yeah, on the side. Rickenbacker. Yeah. Rickenbacker did, yeah. Okay. Wasn't like a regular DC-3 on the inside, though. No. Good luck. <laughs> they had really fixed it up. I've, I've seen yeah. pictures of it. Yeah. I'll give you one small story to bring you up on what happened in the 1011 hangar. We were working on a 1011 one time, and they told me since the, the mechanics, you guys have finished your work, but we still got cabin work to do, put windows in and, and seats and stuff like that. So they sent me up to put windows in, and, of course, the plane is all empty inside, um, they take all the seats and everything out, and and uh, they'd already just put the floorboards in, so we could. They had these little uh, stools with wheels on them, and you could roll around on the floor. They would put um, some boards across uh, the floorboard, so you could wheel from one window to the next. You know, so, and when I got there, there was four women there doing the windows. And I looked at them, and I said, I'm coming up here to help you do the windows. And this one old girl says, well, why don't you just sit over there, kid? Kid, I was 35 years old. And she <laughs> says, this is our job. We bid this job um, something like 25 years ago. And they had the highest seniority of any mechanic in Eastern System because wow. they worked for Eastern Airlines during the war. And then yeah. when the war was over and they told the girls to go back home, have babies, <laughs> cook for daddy, you know, their husbands, and so the men will have jobs. And these four girls refused to, to quit Eastern Airlines. And they Rosie stayed the doing... Riveters. Yeah. Yep. Riveters. <laughs> Chuck? Rosie the Riveters. I thought you were going to say you found that little old lady that stayed on the 1011. Do <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know I'm not the, the we had two incidents of that. Another guy I think um he told a story one time that I think they were in New York. The same thing happened to him. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned that. Um you know they I still don't know how the cabin crew missed this lady. Other than she must have been covered up with blankets and stuff in the back row of a 1011 because it's got five seats in the middle. And evidently, they, when they went to check the plane, they didn't check the whole airplane or they didn't look over in that area. They just thought the other girls and guys 
threw a whole mess of blankets over there to get them out of the way. But uh, yeah, that was that was a real interesting so, story. There you were in your mechanic's uh, outfit, and as she walked off the airplane, <laughs> and she said, uh, "Great trip, Captain." <laughs> yes, she did. Right. Yeah. And my blue pants and white shirt. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that was that was a good deal. My my um, my. The guy was doing the flight engineer panel. He says, uh, "What are we gonna do, Chuck?" I uh, says, you, "Let me call them, and I'll they'll give us uh, directions because they actually had to pull us back up to the jetway to get it all straightened out." And uh, obviously, <laughs> she never knew that, or she didn't realize that the whole plane in the back was empty. And, oh, with uh, that, Chuck, you're gonna hear this music. <laughs> <laughs> Good story, Don. Chuck. Well, Don, you got it. What's that? Go ahead, Don. Our sign-off music is playing in the background. So we'll see you guys again next week, same time, when we continue our trip through the pages of Repartee, the magazine of the Tired Eastman Pilots Association. And don't forget. The EAL radio show this Monday evening at 7 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time when we bring you our dreams, good and bad. And by the way, if you haven't visited our website, www.ealradioshow.com, you'll find many more great stories and memories. So that's it for now. It's time to say good long. So long. And uh, so long to our Eastern family. We love you, Eastern. We love you, Eastern. Thanks a lot, guys. Yep. Love you, Eastern. We love you. Have a night. Shining in the sunlight. Roaring engine. Headed somewhere in flight. They're taking you away. Thanks a lot. Good job, Neil. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you. Bye-bye. Bye.